Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that I did with Otessa Mushveg about her latest novel, Lapvona. Okay, so I have to admit, I have not read this particular novel, but I was a huge, huge fan of my year of rest and relaxation. So is this similar to that? Different? What's it like? <laughs> um, okay, no, I don't think it's similar at all because it is set in a medieval village in Europe. So there's that different time, different place, very different time. No pharmaceutical drugs. No, there's definitely drugs in it, but more of the plant natural variety. Okay. Um, and it's also a third, a third person narrative. So I, I think that's the first time Otessa Moshevik has, has done that, you know, because she oh, drafts cool. these very, you know, voice driven novels often, but this is right. a, a different perspective and um, it's a, it's kind of a larger story and it's really intense, uh, mm. beautifully written, lots of violence, lots, Ooh, of, lots of violence, lots of, lots of guts and, you know, other things, but I really enjoyed it. And I actually was kind of a little, if I'm always, you know, nervous about reading books that I think are going to have a lot of just like really bold violence in them. But I, you know, this one, I, I was able to do it and I thought parts of it were beautiful. Sounds like a, like a Jean Genet novel or like a Dennis Cooper novel. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of Dennis Cooper and I was thinking about that thing of like having to hold the book away. <laughs> and like, it's so intense and gross and how that Dennis Cooper was the first person I, I ever had that with where I'm like holding it away but then like I love it so much and I want to keep on reading it but it's it's scary to me as well totally yeah. that like diet of being both like deeply disturbed but also like really gripped by it yeah and I definitely can see Otessa Mushveg as kind of a, a progenitor of, of that not necessarily gratuitous but extreme very extreme Hmm. Mm, interesting. So kind of an interesting question, but maybe a bit of a tangent. Like what's your favorite gross out novel? Oh boy. Yeah. That's a, that's hard because I've, I haven't read that much Marquis de Sade. I haven't read, oh, okay. I haven't read the, the more classic gross out novels, or I don't know if they're grossed out, but, but really transgressive, super disturbing novels. Um, right. Dennis That's Cooper's, what literally, as we were talking about this, I was thinking about Dennis Cooper's The Marble Swarm, um, okay. which both is very gross, like in the sense that you're talking about like viscera and stuff, which literally does make my skin crawl, but also asking really interesting questions about language and relationships and all that. And there's mystery there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would say of late, I know I mentioned this in our best of episode, but for a review, I reread a lot of Dennis Cooper's books recently and I reread Closer. Oh, and yeah. And it's a really, you know, hard to read book at times and there's murder and there's like stuff about yep. hurting completely helpless children. I mean, not not really children, but teenagers. Right. Very young, young teens. teens. And yeah. Yes. But it is so beautifully, you know, intensely, poetically written that it does feel transcendent, that it doesn't mm. even register quite as like, what the descriptions of what's happening aren't, they're not exactly just what they are. They feel like more, you know? I mean, it's similar to like what you were saying earlier about Desaad, right? Like Desaad's writing is like, it's erotic writing, oftentimes, you know, usually in 
ancien regime style, where it's more like the BDSM stuff that can be quite extreme. But it was also the foundation for a lot of thought in contemporary philosophy and like how we relate to one another. Violence is part of sex, like, you know, sex domination and submission within like the sexual scene. Um, so there are ways in which those like kind of more, to use your word, like visceral or kind of like, you know, viscera type pieces like do help us to transcend or to think differently about something, even if they make us want to put down the book. Yeah, definitely. With that, maybe we should listen to the interview. Let's do it. I'm thrilled to be speaking again with the writer Otessa Moschweig today. Otessa Moschweig's novels include Eileen, which won the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, and Death in Her Hands, both of which were New York Times bestsellers. She's also the author of the story collection Homesick for Another World and the novella McGlue. She joins me to speak about her new book, Labona. The novel is set in a medieval village of the same name, a place beset by violence and extreme cruelty. Its ruler is the loudish overlord, William, who engineers massacres of Lapona's inhabitants whenever dissent grows and steals their water during a deadly drought. William's distant relative is Jude, a shepherd who beats his son Merrick and lies about the fate of Merrick's supposedly deceased mother. Merrick weathers his father's abuse through a devotion to God and the soothing of the village wet nurse, Ina, but his piety doesn't keep him from his own brutal acts. In a fatal twist, he ends up in the care of William, on the hill above the suffering villagers, increasingly complicit in Lapona's corruption, which is as germane today as a thousand years ago. Thank you so much, Atessa, for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so curious where this book came from and what the seed of it was for you. The seed of the book came randomly a couple of years before the project of Lapona sort of appeared. And the seed was the premise of Marek's story, which is a boy kills another boy in some sort of perfect accident. And then the parents of the dead boy take in the boy who killed him as their replacement son. I was throwing that around just, I don't know, off and on. I was like, well, what is that about? And like, why would that happen? Under what circumstances? Under what culture of family? And who is this boy? How would he take to living in the family of the boy whose death he caused? And I just had no idea where that was going. And it just sort of sat there. And then, like everyone, I found myself in my house under lockdown during the pandemic. And I had just moved. We had moved into this house in the fall of 2019. So we were sort of still getting used to it. And we're really grateful that we were here instead of in my shitty East Hollywood apartment, which I miss. But for lockdown, it was really nice to have the space. And we have four dogs and I dedicate Lapvona to one of them because he totally looks like a dog from Lapvona. Like, I think he may have written the whole book in my imagination just based on his face. The house that we moved into is old for a California house. It's like 100 years old. And it's built of stones that are from a church 
somewhere on the coast, I forget, that was destroyed in an earthquake. So because I was in this new house and I was suddenly very much contained by the house because of COVID, I thought a lot about the materials and sort of became not even interested, but vulnerable to the churchiness of these stones and thinking about how, what vibrations they're bringing into my life. And I don't know, the late Middle Ages just sort of conjured itself as a place and a time in what felt to me like Eastern Europe, but very much nonspecific. I wanted to write an escapist novel while experiencing what everyone was going through. So my perspective was more broad rather than in my previous novels where I wrote from a very close interior first person. I wanted to write a book in the third person from an omniscient point of view, mostly because that interests me because I hadn't done it. And then because it really lent itself to this sort of fable, fantasy, fairy tale, quasi-historical genre. I was noticing that and wondering what that experience was like for you as someone who I've heard you in interviews mention that often the way that you write novels is with a voice. And it's that you're dictating what a voice is saying to you. And I thought that must be a shift to then take the omniscient perspective and how that was different. I mean, I think it really serves this novel in particular because we're not identifying too much with any one character in this kind of level playing field of cruelty where every single character is cruel. And I can't say that I was rooting for one more than another. So I thought in that way of not having some kind of binary of like, oh, one character is the vaulted character and the other is the evil one. It was very useful for that. Yeah, there's something democratic about that point of view. (laughs) It was funny because I thought if I strip away the narrative voice and put it in an omniscient narrator voice, am I going to lose my sense of the voice? Is it going to be anonymous? I didn't know because I've so rarely written in that point of view. But once I started writing, it it felt natural and it felt like the voice was established in my mind and I could hear the tonality and the rhythm and where it wanted to go. The timing of the story was something that I thought about more than how I dealt with timing in, let's say, my year of rest and relaxation. Because I think something about this narrator in Lapbona made it so I had to work linearly Even when I was skipping from character to character and going into their backstory, there was no moment in the writing in which I could ever have written, like jumped ahead and written a part in a future section. Whereas when I was working on drafts of my year of rest and relaxation, I often appropriated a paragraph from page 100 to page three. So what I guess I'm saying is something happened in the process of inhabiting the third person narrator, wherein I felt like I was still conjuring a kind of storyteller, even though the narrator isn't a character in the story. And how much did you know where this was going as you were writing it? Had you, because it does have kind of an intricate plot and there are a lot of surprises, like how much had you mapped out 
what was going to happen before you started to really write the novel? I mapped it out a lot. I did a lot of mapping and even drew maps, actually, of Lapona as an area, a geographical area. I had had different experiences. And I know this is something like people have strong feelings about like the novelists I know about what's important to them in terms of planning. And I've tried to just forget what I used to believe is that like writing is this spontaneous, inspired, in the moment, almost like performance art. And it would be insane to plot out a story or a novel ahead of time because the story reveals itself in the writing. And I believe that's still true, but having experimented with some different processes, like with Eileen, I plotted it, I planned it. With my year of rest and relaxation, no idea, no idea. And it was hell. I did not enjoy that process. I mean, sure, there were parts of the writing where I felt like I was getting something down that was important and it was working. But in terms of figuring out the arc of the book, how the book worked from 20 feet away, totally clueless, wasted, not wasted, but spent so much time writing in the wrong directions that I felt like I had some hang up about thinking about plot. Like, this isn't a book with a complex plot, my year. But if I had started with a clean concept of what was going to happen to my character, it would have been a different book, but I would have saved myself a lot of anguish. So having not been attached to Lapvona based on a process, I was like, okay, I'll save myself the anguish. I was like already so upset by the world in general. This is a creative act over which I have some amount of agency and control. So given that there are all these moving parts, I'm going to plan it and strategize because I knew that the timing of the storytelling was going to be, that was going to make or break the book. Like it could have been really boring or it could have felt really thin. When you say timing, do you just mean kind of like how rich the story was, like how long you stayed with a character and what happened to them, the actual temporality of the novel itself, because there are many scenes that are just, they do kind of expand, they're in nature, these small details are coming up. It does have this kind of more reflective time. Yes, definitely that. And the, I guess when I say timing, what I really mean is pacing the pacing of the story, how long I stayed with one character, where I left them, and how that connected or didn't connect to the next character being in the camera lens. Maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the characters. Merrick, I do think the book revolves around Merrick, but he was someone whose character seemed, to me at least, to change, or the way I thought of him in the beginning, he seems like more of a victim. He's a martyr. He's just the subject of a lot of cruelty from the people in the village and his own father, and even in some ways, his mother. But then his character evolves and he is a perpetrator of cruelty throughout the book as well. And so I was wondering, was it that his circumstances change and he becomes in a place of more power? Or is it just that his circumstances change, but in some sense, a lot of his anguish and his violence is consistent throughout? 
I think you're right about both of those things. I mean, I think there are some intrinsic qualities to Marek's personality that have already been established when we meet him. Like we meet him, he's already an adolescent and has had this completely codependent and fucked up relationship with his father, which is really abusive and spiritual and super isolated away from the rest of society. They have between them a very distinct and twisted worldview and belief system that's based on lies, essentially. And Marek has already grown to be a twisted creature who knows that eliciting pity in people is a way to remain innocent, but still have power. And so when he is displaced from the home environment in which we find him, i.e. his father's home, into the Lord's home on the top of the mountain, he's still using the same tricks. Poor me, but poor me with an agenda that is now new. There are a lot of ways I have compassion for Marek. And I based him a lot on my own feelings about being an adolescent. And I've never written about a character with scoliosis before. That was a huge part of my experience growing up. And it remains. I mean, in a lot of the things I was dealing with, like I wrote Lapvona mostly lying down like this. Because of the pandemic, I couldn't go to my physical therapist, which I'd been going to twice a week. And as a result, my spinal health really deteriorated and I was in this very uncomfortable. So I was like, I wonder what it would be like to write a character with a body like mine. So I think I aligned myself with Mark, although I don't like the way that his, (laughs) I don't really want him to be my child. (laughs) That sounds like a lot, but there are things about him that I respect and find fascinating. The survivor He knows how to ingratiate himself, which is a big part of survival in a hostile world. He's also a boy of faith, which is something that I rarely come across in my daily life as an adolescent who is so sanctimoniously faithful and fears God. That was interesting. And his need to be loved and affirmed was something that I I guess is probably at the core of every character that I have conjured. But that in Marek felt so obvious and pure and so obvious and perverse at the same time. I have to say that Marek and Jude, his father, who's also something of a believer to me, did give me a sense of empathy because both of them seem to be very lacking in love and both kind of faithful to an idea of God that something that seemed poignant to me at times. And both could be, you know, Jude, even though he beats Merrick and there's this, it's like so much dark humor that we hear the story of how he basically raped 
Agatha, Merrick's mother, but it's like, we don't hear the fact that she was tied up right until the end. So it's almost like a little bit from his point of view that they're having this passionate consummation, but then, but then you mentioned like the ropes around her ankles, you know? And so, but both of them did make me feel something that maybe the Lords and the people in the manor and, you know, the priests who are just so obviously corrupt didn't make me feel. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that lack of love that neither of them have had the completely torn apart families is something that at least you understand, like, well, where would this anguish come from? I mean, I think suffering is like, in some ways, it's a power card. The book opens with the aftermath of a raid by bandits in which some children are killed. And the first character we actually meet is their grandfather, the dead children's grandfather, Grigor who plays an important role in the rest of the story, but we just meet him for a moment in his grief and rage after his grandchildren have been murdered. And it just occurs to me now that so much of what I feel for people divorced from judgment in all of my bullshit opinions has to do with death. Death is the great equalizer in that we're all going to die. We're all going to lose people that we love. And we all know that about each other. And there's something that happened to me when I started to lose people that I really love. Where it's like, I kind of felt like I got off my high horse. Suddenly, all of my suffering felt really petty because, holy shit, human beings have been going through grief since the dawn of time. And now me too, it was very humbling. I mean, not that I thought I had life figured out, but I had no idea the extent of love and pain that exists when death occurs. So I definitely brought some of that into the stories with Grigor and with Marek, because Marek is raised thinking that essentially he killed his mom by existing. By being born. And he carries a lot of guilt. And then I think also creates a lot of reasons to feel guilty because the guilt is sort of his defining emotion. It's the emotion into which he was born. So he does shit and then feels guilty for it and then feels sorry for himself. It's a pattern. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Otessa Moshvig, author of Labona. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Elif Batman back on the line. Elif Batman is the author of a new novel called Either Or, among other books, and Elif is here to give me a book recommendation. Hello. One book I've been reading lately that I've really been enjoying is a novel called The Eighth Life by Nina Haratashvili. You know, I'm reading it on an ebook, but I think it's extremely long. I think it's like a thousand pages. She wrote it in German and it was translated into English and I think published in England. I'm not sure if it's come out in the US. It's a family novel. The writer is was born in Georgia and it's, it's a novel about 
three or four generations in this Georgian family over the 20th. And I guess eventually it's going to go into the early 21st century, but so far it's really been the the 20th century. And it's so interesting. I'm actually planning to go to Georgia later this summer to research, actually to hang out with mostly with Russian people who have ended up there because they're dissidents to the war. And I've been thinking a lot about um, the role of imperialism in, in Russian literature. But of course, I didn't want to go to a whole other country and only think about Russian people, um, which has been, you know, the fate of a lot of former Soviet states. Uh, so I was really happy when someone randomly mentioned this book to me. And I'm loving it because it's so good on the relationship of Georgia and Russia and and the Soviet Union. And there's some characters in the book who are very pro-Soviet and are part of the Soviet state. And there's others who stay in Georgia. And it's just completely fascinating. Can't put it down. Wow. And is it based in Tbilisi or is it all over the country? It is based, a lot of it is in Tbilisi. And then it's in some unnamed town that they say, oh, Tbilisi is like the Paris of the Caucasus. But there's this other town that they don't name that I think they call the niece of the Caucasus. And but that also parts of it take place in Moscow and in Leningrad. And one of the characters becomes a political exile and she's in London. So it's it's all over the place. It's really great. It's it's really great on how like family dispersal and those dynamics and and the way that you know, different members of the family. I experienced this with my own family, you know, like some members of my family are like more pro-American than others, and that creates its own particular dynamics. So I really love reading that. That sounds wonderful. And uh, I'm jealous that you're going to Georgia because I I'd oh, love I'm to super go there. Excited. Yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah. Um, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? The book is The Eighth Life. And there's a subtitle, which is for Brilka. It's narrated to the this character called Brilka. The author is Nina Haratishvili. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alice. Thank you. That was Elif Batman. Her new novel is called Either Or. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Otessa Moschweg, author of Black Bona. I also wanted to ask you about Ina, because um, just in terms of, of these families that are disparate and, you know, she is this figure that emerges as a a nurturing presence, perhaps only the the one nurturing person in the book in that she's been the wet nurse for like generations of these villagers and that she was both Jude and Merrick's wet nurse and something about her witchiness and her, you know, her knowledge of herbs and also she has one of my favorite lines in the book when Jude is telling her like, oh, don't you want to go to heaven? And she says, no, I wouldn't know anybody there. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best line. Um, so she, I, I really like thought she was a great character. And I just wonder how she came to you. She was really fun to write. Ina was, I felt like Ina was really calling the shots in a lot of ways. And I was kind of afraid of her, mostly because she knew way more than I did. I mean, she could understand bird song and communicate with animals and had, I mean, she also had this sense of superiority over humanity and that she had almost conquered her own mortality. 
there's a horrible drought and um, famine in the summer. And she is essentially dead, but still alive. I mean, she's completely starved to near death and she is still alive. And it's almost as though she had a secret and I still don't know what it is, you know? But because of that, there was this you know, larger than life supernatural ability that she had. And all I really had to do was start her off. And she was sort of dictating the terms of her own journey. Like there's a, <clears throat> no, she's blinded at a young age and then how to regain the ability to see. And then through something that I guess would be sort of a giveaway, completely regains her ability to see. And like, I did not see that coming. That was not part of the plan. So she surprised me a lot. You know, there's this scene. She's also, again, it's just, I, there's this just throughout the book, I think in most of your work, there's just a total lack of morality. So it's like the circumstances call for her, you know, there's the the drought, everyone's starving, circumstances call for her to eat another person, you know, and she does ravenously um, and and it saves her life. And I think that, you know, the Middle Ages are often kind of relegated to this like brutal time, um, just like full of violence, no understanding, like these extremes, um, which is not accurate, but that's how we think of it. And of course, I, I'm sure that in, you know, critics reading the book are going to say that this novel is like somewhat of a parable for these times, you know, the extreme wealth inequality, you know, the plague. I don't think that's how you intended it, but, but you know, is there anything to that? Um, and and if not, you know, what what was calling you about this time beyond the con connections to the stones from your house? I mean, <laughs> what, what was what was interesting to you about the Middle Ages? Well, you know, when people say I'm about to get medieval on your ass, that's kind of the way I felt like the world was operating. I don't know. You know, years ago, I wrote a short story called Brahm that I sat on for a while and then later published in Granta. And it's about a failed knight who finds God through the ecstasy of pain and discomfort by putting objects up his rectum. And that sat with me. Like that, that sort of just like sat there and I was like, well, that's a really strange story to, um, you know, just leave as a one-off. And I think that I was always interested in setting more fiction in the Middle Ages. Like Robin Hood was always a really powerful story for me growing up. I mean, not that I really ever understood it, but I don't know. Around the time that I started figuring out what Lapvona was as a book. I started doing research because I thought, okay, well, maybe it's set in Eastern Europe. And my ancestry is from, half of my ancestry is from Eastern Europe. And so my mother, who's Croatian, and, you know, I've, I, okay, so I'll just say this, like, I'm interested in that uh, lineage I've never had the 23andMe like spit chromosome test or whatever, but my brother did, my brother who's passed. And I kept looking at the email that he sent me with the results. 
And it was like 49% Middle Eastern Jew. And then 51% completely all over the place, Europe. And I remember talking to my mom and she's like, you know, the, the Balkans, like everyone came through there. Like we have Mongolian ancestry. We have Finnish ancestry. This was the crossroads for so much. And um, one thing my mom always says when, you know, not that I'm down in the dumps or I, or I, you know, I feel challenged, let's say, is, you know, don't forget you come from pirates. And, um, and so I was like, were they like, were we really pirates? And also that, you know, that's a little bit too cool. Like I can't, I can't really believe that. But um, anyway, I, I started doing some research. I contacted this scholar of um, like Adriatic history and um, you know, I, like whether or not we were from pirates, I don't know, but the, it, it was during the marine trade, et cetera, et cetera. So I just started thinking about that and like where I might have come from. And that, I guess Lapona was as far back as I could imagine. Mm. And were you doing research, like reading histories, other novels? I mean, how, you know, I, I, I do feel like it, it felt realistic. And I mean, not that I know anything about the Middle Ages, but it seemed like they were details. And then, you know, there's like certain language seems really accurate. And then other times it it seems much more present day and mm-hmm. it's kind of like some humor comes from that. But um, how much, like how much for similitude were you shooting for? Um, I just wanted, I, I wanted it to feel real enough that you wouldn't um, get distracted, that you, that you could buy in to the fiction and, and feel like you were in safe hands. I did do research. It's funny because the most immediate research like if if you look up books on life in the middle ages it's all about england so a lot of the research i did was about england in the middle ages and the way that those governments worked and what daily life was like and then i found some books about poland and those histories were so dense like so much that it was a little bit overwhelming So I ended up kind of picking and choosing the details that I wanted in order to tell the story, like the colors and and, and the materials and all that kind of stuff. I did research about the natural world a lot, about like you were talking about the the herbal medicines and stuff and birds and wildlife and agriculture, sheep. I could definitely tell. And I thought that that seemed like, um, you know, I've, I say I don't know anything about the Middle Ages, but I've only read like the introduction to um, the waning of the Middle Ages. That book. Oh, and, I don't know that. Okay, yeah, that's a that's that's like the one one thing I have, and I'm always meaning to read the whole book, but it's it's very beautifully written, and it it just it talks about you know the relationship to nature, like the silence you know, like the light and dark, those are like, although we think of it all about brutal extremes, those were some of the more extremes that that author is invoking. And I definitely felt that. Um, And I've heard you in other interviews talk so much about your relationship to animals and, you know, the lambs here, like Jude is, um, takes care of these lambs who he loves, but he's cruel to them as well. Like he almost can't bear like how Mm -hmm. sad their deaths make him. 
And I felt like that was um, very affecting. And I, I wondered, yeah, like, I don't know, you know, just if that, if that, if that was another aspect of this, of this time period that was appealing to you or like inspiring to you that you could be closer to nature in that sense. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I felt closer to nature when I wasn't driving my car and, you know, I became a vegetarian again during the pandemic. And it was like in the past, like I was like, oh yeah, maybe this is a way to control my life by restricting my diet, kind of like eating disordered stuff. Or, you know, maybe this is, uh, you know, something I can hold on to. But this time, I mean, I've been a vegetarian on and off my whole life, but this time it it felt like it was coming from a very deep place. And it was just all of a sudden, you cannot eat animals or else they will not trust you. And that kind of broke my heart. Like suddenly I started to see it in a different way. And it, actually my appetite shifted. I was like, I, am, I do not want to be a predator, which is so complicated because like I have four dogs and I feed them meat, you know? So I don't know, I'm not, I'm not like preaching or anything, but I definitely got... I, I definitely had a lot of feelings about the life and death of animals um, while writing this book and kind of seeing, I mean, it was funny. I, I, did other people experience this during the pandemic when you couldn't, I mean, I like, I remember driving once through Los Angeles and it was like, it really was like a post-apocalyptic landscape and I would come, I, I remember like coming back and turning down into the street where I live. And it, it was like being in the countryside all of a sudden, even though I live in the suburbs. And so everything felt really extreme in that way. I guess, you know, right, there's this like latent political viewpoint in the in the novel, which is just like, oh yeah, like the the amount of corruption, which I'm sure is accurate that you capture. And also the people, you know, who could do something about it, but are kind of lulled into complacency for various reasons. And also this, like the church, the, like the church and state being so tied together. Um, were you like, is that at all, you know, illustrative of certain like political frustrations you have or concerns you have, or is that, was that just historical accuracy? Um, I wouldn't call it frustrations or concerns. It's more just like that is so obviously the way that control works in a culture. Like here we are ingesting information that leads us to a belief system that gives us justification to support the person who we think reflects our values. That's what culture does. It teaches you what to believe. I felt like we had such an opportunity during the pandemic and the, the Black Lives Matter movement to really look at what we actually believe. Because we're still like the adults in our culture. I'm 41. Like when I was in kindergarten, they told me that the pilgrims and the Native Americans were friends and that Christopher Columbus discovered the United States and that, um, you know, the abolishment of slavery made everything equal and that everybody loves Martin Luther King. These are the people 
coming into power now, I mean, it takes so much for a human being to unlearn shit. And I felt like when when we were watching everything fall apart and all these essential pieces of American culture being called into question and our own history, the way that we looked at our own history, we could have changed so much. And I was like, this is such an opportunity. And I was also afraid, you know? We don't want everything to fall apart. We just want the bad things to fall apart. I'm like, well, how do you have, how do you negotiate that? And so looking at Lap, looking at Lapvona as this small world, you know, and how vulnerable were the people and also how cowardly they were. I mean, there's something that happens toward the end of the the section called um, winter, where the whole community could have been changed if these two people told the truth. And they chose not to because they knew that it would put them in danger. Shit sucks like that, you know? I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I wrote Labvona about the world we're living in and also just any world. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I know this is a large question to, you know, wind down on, but um, as someone who's just written so much about cruelty and people doing awful things to each other, do you think that like cruelty exists? Is cruelty acculturated or is cruelty just innate to human beings and like, and, and, and a result of lack of love, more or less? All I know is that, like, I can remember being a baby. I remember the first time I felt angry was when my mother was late to pick me up. Like, I was in my babysitter's house in the crib watching, and it was getting dark, and I was watching the headlights from passing cars go along the wall. And I remember thinking, like, she isn't here. I'm all alone. I'm angry. And I think, you know... (laughs) It, 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 it's, it's that impossible to keep a person peaceful. And I don't think that the task at hand is to completely, I mean, like, look at gun control. Like, you take away people's guns, they're going to get knives. Then they're going to get, like, knives that are, like, on slings and that you can throw at people. Like, they're just going to invent a new kind of gun. I mean, not that I think, like, I'm totally for gun control, throw all that shit away. Um, But it just, yeah, I think it's not that there is an essential evil within us. It's just that we are programmed to survive. And we are programmed to be afraid and to defend ourselves. And we've reached a point in our quote-unquote civilization that we feel so threatened by an idea that someone has that we would go and want to kill them because we think that that idea is going to ruin our own reality. I mean, I think we're just built a monster of something that is really basically for survival. And um, I actually think that's like basically what culture is. It's, It's a system of learning how to survive and cope with trauma. Well, thank you so much, Otessa, for being here and speaking with me. 
It's been a pleasure, Kate. Thank you. Thank you. That was Otessa Mushbag. Her latest book is Lab Fona. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.